the further out states or Midwest states we still see are trading at, you know, a nicer part would still be trading at, you know, five and a half to six caps, where that same exact park, if you move that park to Florida or even to Charlotte, where that same park will trade at a four cap. So that's crazy. We do see investors. Yeah, we see investors going to markets um, that they might not have. I know. I don't mean to keep picking on you, Glenn, but I know that the Glenn SEC team now is focused on Iowa, which has been a state that is not for for whatever reason was not a very big attraction for investors. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice live. This is actually the first time we're doing it live. I am really excited to be joined today by Judah because he is really, truly an expert in this asset class and has a lot of great insight into not only what it's like to be involved in this industry, but so much like how you can actually make it work. And what we've seen, maybe Judah, give us a little background about yourself, how you got into the space, your company, Princeton Capital Group. First of all, it's a, it's a real honor to be on <laughs> from watching many, many episodes of Weiss Advice and just meeting you at a couple of events and different conferences. This is like a dream come true. It's like, it's a real <laughs> honor. It's, it's awesome. I think you have a great audience. I think what you do is great. I think uh, discovering another uh, Orthodox Jew in this space was always uh, a breath of fresh air for me. It's like, okay, let's get some more guys from the tribe involved here. But the background for me with mobile home parks is um, I started as a commercial mortgage broker around eight years ago at a firm called Eastern Union, large national firm focused primarily and I would say almost solely on multifamily financing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ran a year or two in, I was doing my daily list of cold calls and a nice gentleman picks up and I, I'm calling from Eastern Union Funding. We do financing, all asset types, all, you know, we do da 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 And he says, do you finance mobile home parks? So I said, yeah, sure. Because that was my knee-jerk reaction and, and, and what I'm trained to just so he started Say yes and then, then try to get it done, uh, figure it out afterwards, yeah, right? Exactly. But he was, uh, started asking me some pointed questions about amortization and LTV and, you know, which lenders we go to, are there recourse, non recourse? And he quickly discovered that, uh, I really was not that well versed in mobile home parks. So he was kind enough and said, maybe there's a senior broker at your firm that actually knows about mobile home parks that you'd like to connect me with which was extremely gracious of him. And today he's one of my uh, longest standing clients and uh, I'm grateful for his opportunity. And and I quickly discovered a whole asset class out there that I had no idea existed. And subsequently I had a multifamily client that had called me around a month later, said, hey, I'm looking into going into what he called trailer parks. Is there financing for trailer parks? And I was a little better versed at that point and um, I was able to coach him and and kind of at the same time do my diligence of which lenders actually lend the mobile home parks, which one which lenders would lend on trailer parks. And then there, as we'll talk about soon, there are some lenders that only like the nicer assets and the communities mm-hmm. and so on. But 
the that's the long story short of how I got involved in mobile home parks. Around two years later, I was doing uh, enough business in this asset class that we formed the MHC or MHP division within Eastern Union. And then May of 2020, I left Eastern Union to form Princeton Capital Group, which is uh, okay. a firm that I formed together with my partner, Avi Weiss. I don't know if he's related, but that's like asking... Uh, no relation. To, right? No relation, right? So... Avi and myself, um, we founded Princeton Capital Group with the uh, goal of obviously keeping our focus on multifamily, but with a strong emphasis on mobile home parks. Little did I know Mm -hmm. that mobile home parks would then explode during COVID to a new level. Um, And at this point, I would say around 70 to 80 percent of our deal flow is in the MHP space. Interesting. Um, We've closed uh, just over 60 loans this year in the MHB space. That's awesome. And uh, I have another nice, you know, probably another 10 or 15 scheduled to close still this year. So it's been an amazing journey. Um, I love the space. I love everything about it. Uh, what I love the most, I would say, is that there's no other mortgage brokers that make it their focus. So <laughs> I, I have that's that a great niche for you in the meantime. But yeah, yeah, in the meantime, let's hope not too many mortgage brokers are tuned in here. But um, on a serious note, that's really been um, a, a, a great journey and, and realizing that there is a, this asset class out there that many have been slowly discovering. And, and I think in thanks part to your, someone like yourself, which has been educating people on the tax savings and the cost seg, which has brought mm-hmm. a lot of fresh equity to the table for sponsors right. and syndicators to then go out and buy deals. So Absolutely. that's the uh, Absolutely. Uh, background here with Princeton Capital. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Judah. So for those of you who are joining us a little late today, we are live today with the Weiss Advice Podcast, and we're with Judah Adarit of Princeton Capital Group. Uh, we're talking about mobile home parks, and I'd love to get into, you talked about the financing of mobile home parks and how you quickly learned right over the years of, of getting into this that there are spe- very specifics with regard to how banks or how lenders look at mobile home parks differently. And let's talk a little bit about how an investor who is maybe very well versed in multifamily or in single family or other real estate asset classes, how they fare when it comes to uh, looking at this new a- asset class of mobile home parks and how, you know what they're going to be looking for, what are the differences that the lenders are going to be looking for, if any? Sure. So to start, the example I like to give people is when you go visit a, any zoo, there is different, they typically have the zoo set up with different sections of animals you have the reptiles in one section you have the birds and then you have the mammals and you have the the, the you know kind of different sections so right. mobile home parks as much as it's part of the multifamily asset class and it might be in the same section of the zoo but it's definitely in its own cage so there are different nuances and little differences that might seem very minute to uh, someone getting into the space and be like oh okay that's not such a big difference but because of all the little differences, there are some lenders that, even though they'll lend on multifamily and they'll lend on single family and they'll lend on other asset classes, for whatever reason, and I believe it's just pure ignorance, will not hmm. lend on mobile home parks. However, Interesting. the lenders that we do find that lend on mobile home parks are typically the same lenders that will lend on multifamily and have an understanding in mobile home parks. Some of them have a better understanding than others. Some of them have different specifications of what type of parks they'll lend them. So we'll get to that in okay. a minute. But from an investor spend standpoint, 
I, it's really just understanding that the same way you buy a multifamily deal or a single family portfolio and mm-hmm. a rental property that you're investing in. So it's very similar. You have a park with a bunch of mobile homes on there that are all paying rent. And that rent that you collect as the landlord is your rent that's going to go towards paying your expenses that you're going to incur at the park, whether it's taxes, insurance, utilities. Do you find that maybe it's just a, a stigma that maybe the, the lenders that haven't lent in the past or, or, or don't lend on mobile loan parks? Do you think it's just because of the, the, the stigma that you know trailer parks have had in the past? I believe that that's true. I think that that's both from an investing standpoint and from a lending standpoint. I think that people are a little wary of getting into the asset class because of that stigma that they've heard of trailer parks and the drug-infested parks or whatever else might be uh, that stigma out there. And the same goes for lenders, where lenders are wary or unable to lend on these parks because that's the picture that they have in their mind. And from my and I've tried and, and sometimes successfully, but for the most part, unsuccessfully try to educate lenders and say, here, here's an OM from one of the big brokers out there. Can you even, without it saying a mobile home community on top, can you tell me that this is a mobile home community? And at many times they have no idea. And they'll mm-hmm. say like, are you sure this is a mobile home park? Like this looks nice. like a regular multifamily or single family you know, beautiful development out in, uh, you know, wherever it might be. So it's really just educating people and being like, okay, there are, there definitely are some mobile home parks or trailer parks out there. But from what we've seen, for the most part, investors are either buying deals like that and quickly turning them around, or they're not buying those parks. They're buying parks that are a little bit nicer, have the paved roads, have homes that look a little nicer. Right. Um, So where it gets nuanced, though for an investor um just getting back to that point is mm-hmm. with a multifamily property you're buying multifamily property you own the building tenants come in rent the apartments it's very simple and straight up typically you know you might have sometimes where tenants pay for their utilities sometimes where you pay for the utilities so it can get a drop nuance there with mobile home parks it can totally vary you can have parks with park-owned homes and parks with right. no park-owned homes and then a park right. that as we say has a challenge has a mix uh, some park on homes, some of non park on homes. And then you have to figure out, am I going to be targeting those parks that I want to run similar to an apartment complex where I'll own the homes, but thereby incurring more repairs and maintenance costs, higher payroll, higher, um, you know, just turnover. Or mm-hmm. will I try to target a park where the tenants own their own homes? So my expenses are strictly park expenses, taxes, right. insurance, utilities. Mm-hmm. But my payroll is very minimal because it's just collecting rent. My repairs and maintenance right. is just repairing some sidewalks. So mm-hmm. um, that's where it gets nuanced and that's in where it lies a tremendous difference between some lenders. Fannie gotcha. and Freddie will lend on parks, but they don't like the park-owned home model. So gotcha. they'll allow for a certain amount of park-owned homes in a park, but once it gets above that 25%, 30% level, they're like, this is not for us. We don't want interesting. Those as our collateral. Interesting because on, on the flip side, I mean, if you look at a totally park-owned home mobile home park, that's much more similar to, uh, to a single-family portfolio or multifamily that they're used to lending on, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's it's that's really cr- where it's it is comical in a way because 
like you're saying, why wouldn't they love a park that's a beautiful park with all park-owned home, brand new models built by Legacy in 2020, and it's just that should be the home run deal for them, and that's a deal they won't touch. Um, and I think that that goes into a little bit on your end of things, where because because of the depreciation of these homes, and because of how lenders look at that depreciation of okay, these homes will not be worth much soon. We don't want them as collateral. So we mm-hmm. want strictly the pads or the land as our collateral. We don't want these homes as collateral, which plays gotcha. into what you do with cost seg is kind of, okay, so if you're saying that these things do depreciate that fast, let's use that for our benefit of taxes. Right. Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I do want to ask you a little more about the uh, about the financing. You mentioned earlier, and we do have a few questions here um, from our audience, so I do want to get to those right after this question. But briefly, are there any, because you mentioned like, more lenders are getting um, involved because this asset class has really taken off. There's a lot of new money coming into mobile home parks across the country. Are there new or uh, or any like great financing options that are available now that weren't in the past? Definitely. I would say starting from the bank side of things, balance sheet lenders, there are, you know, traditionally, I wouldn't say traditionally, but go back three years ago, I had literally three or four options of banks to go to. Now, again, I don't deal, or here at Princeton Capital, we don't typically deal with the local, small local banks in that market. It's very tough for me as a mortgage broker to keep up relationships with the regional and national lenders as it is, but to start trying to develop a relationship with every small bank and every community bank would be nearly impossible. Okay, so, so maybe just maybe fair to say that some of the local banks, yeah, right. So maybe fair to say in some local communities, small local banks may actually still be an option out there, right? For sure. And, and there are times where someone will bring me a deal, and I'll say, "This is not a deal for us. It's not a deal that my lenders that we have a relationship would look at." But go knocking on some bank doors because you never know; you might find right. an aggressive bank in that area. But from the regional banks, I had two or three banks to go to. That was it. And if they said no, even after my you know, cajoling and convincing and pushing, they still said no, then I was out of options. Today, I would say that list has grown probably to 20. 20 lenders that have, you know, 15 new lenders that have entered the scene and larger banks from regional and national um, levels that have come to realize that this asset class is for a reason attracting new investors, for a reason has strong collections, for that same reason has the lowest default rate of any asset class in the country. And for that same reason that Fannie and Freddie, you know, got aggressive as of late on the asset class. And that brings me to the next level, which is the agency side. Right. Fannie, Freddie, they are giving waivers left and right. So they had their boxes you need to check. And if you didn't check those boxes, again, go back three years ago, it was a flat out. No, sorry, we don't, you know, this is not for us. You have too many park-owned homes. Your roads are not paved. You don't have skirting on every home. Sorry. This is, we like a beautiful community. This is not a beautiful community. In the past couple of years, in the last two years, we've seen them start to give waivers and we go in and request a waiver. You know, we know that all the homes here are not skirted. We will get those homes skirted for you. We know all the roads are not paved beautifully. We will get that done. We know there's might be a little bit too many park owned homes here. Within a year, we'll get that number down to where you need it to be. And we've seen both Fannie and Freddie suddenly say, you know what? Okay. We'll do that deal because I think it's a combination of all those reasons. It's just they look at their books and they see their default rate on this asset class is close to zero. And they're like, okay, mm-hmm. let's get more aggressive here. 
Right. That's great. That's great to know because it sounds like, you know, you are being creative when the bank or the lender, especially someone, you know, like these, these agency lenders that are coming and saying, we can't do this. And then you're being creative and saying, okay, well, let's, how can we work this out? How can we make it happen? Let's do it. So let's, let's get to some of the chat here. We got some awesome chats and you guys, uh, anyone who, who is watching live and I see there's a lot of people watching live right now. If you can just write in the comments, any questions that you do have for myself or Judah and just give a like, give a hashtag, uh, hashtag, you know, MHPs rock. If you, if you like this. Okay. So hashtag MHPs rock in the comments and let's get to some of these questions here. We got a question from Shimon who, who asked about which you may have answered already. He says, thanks for asking the question. But Shimon asked, uh, when you talk about capital financing, once a loan is obtained, do your developers slash investors buy the home and rent both the home and the land or just the land? What do you think about that? So that's really going to depend on the borrower by borrower. I would say there's, for the most part, I, I've never seen a guy, a client go out and buy a park that has park-owned homes and not buy the homes as well. So I would say, to answer that specific question, I have yet to see someone that goes out there buying a park that has park-owned homes and says to the seller, I only want to buy the park. I don't want to buy the park-owned homes. Right. Um, you know, can we work something out? I'm, I, I wouldn't say that's not done. I personally have not seen it done. But from a lending perspective, almost all lenders, uh, there are a few, um, a few outliers here that will finance the homes. But for the most part, uh, let's put it at 95% of lenders will finance strictly the purchase mm. of the land and the pads, and you're left to buy the homes with your own capital. If there um, are any, meaning which, meaning in many cases there, there are, are just in many cases they're just what we call tenant-owned homes, which means you just own the land and correct. the land improvements, the concrete, whatever it is. Right. Correct. So there are times where lenders drill down into that price allocation and say, okay, let me see your purchase and sale agreement. Does it give an allocation towards the homes? If it does, we can't lend on that. I would mm -hmm. say starting from agencies, that's the first thing that they'll look at and say, okay, you're buying a park for $5 million. Are you really buying the park for $5 million or are you buying it for four or five? And there's 500000 here towards homes. And then they'll say, gotcha. whatever LTV we're going to give you, we're giving you only on that 4.5. But for the most part, if there is no allocation or if you're dealing with a bank that's okay with understanding that you're allocating some towards homes for tax purposes or for the seller's tax mm -hmm. purposes, as long as the appraisal supports that full purchase amount, they can go off of that. But again, they're not taking the homes as collateral. They're not technically financing the homes. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Shimon, I have a follow-up question over here for you. Uh, you mentioned that this year your team has closed 60 loans plus and, and many more in the pipeline. How many of them are originations, meaning acquisitions, and how many are refinances? I think that's what his question is. I would have to ask my partner for the exact breakdown, but I would like to say it's around a 50-50 split. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so a lot of a lot of acquisitions happening. Yeah, a lot of people buying a lot of home parks. Happening. I, I think in the mobile home park sector itself, I would say it's Closer probably to a 60 40, which 60% purchases, 40% refines. Awesome. But it's awesome. close to that 50 50. Okay. Um, are there any markets that you're seeing specifically? Um, and obviously, you work with people across the country. Your clients are, are working, are acquiring properties all over the place, right? But are there any specific markets that you see like getting more attention than others? Um, that's going to depend on where Glenn Esterson focuses his uh, efforts. But now we're seeing a, a greater attention from Midwest states but till very recently it was a very heavy concentration on southeast carolinas georgia florida 
but we're definitely seeing that those markets have seen greater cap rate compression than mm -hmm. some of the outliers. So the further out states or Midwest states, we still see are trading at you know a nicer part would still be trading at you know five and a half to six caps, where that same exact park, if you move that park to Florida or even to Charlotte, where that same park will trade at a four cap. So that's crazy. We do see investors. Yeah, we see investors going to markets um, that they might not have. I know. I don't mean to keep picking on you, Glenn. But I know that the Glen SEC team now is focused on Iowa, which has been a state that is not, for for whatever reason, was not a very big attraction for investors. Mm -hmm. And now is because you can get higher yields and you can buy deals that look the same as a park out in a stronger market or what people perceive as a stronger market and get uh, better yields. Gotcha. So Sam uh, Obermeister here says, uh, Judah, there you're the man. Avi Weiss, your second man, but don't you have a big deal to close today? How are you chilling on a podcast? That's my question also. And I'll answer that for you because um, I won't answer you, but but the way you close deals all day long is just by hanging out on podcasts. I mean, if you don't know, that's the way to do it. That's what I do. And that's uh, oh, that's man. been the that's been the the key to my success is is just hanging on a podcast all day long. And yeah, so, so the short there answer is uh, the short answer for me is that he kind of answered his own question. I have a second man. Avi, who, if I could turn around the camera, you would see him uh, hunched over his computer trying to get Sam's deal closed. So um, <laughs> we, 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 that's why we work as a team. I get to chill on the podcasts and go to conferences and enjoy good dinners with clients and lenders and develop that side of the, of the business while Avi actually makes sure that the deals that we do bring in get closed. Awesome. It's a great partnership. Obviously, any type of partnership, you need to have that type of, uh, you know, that spread of the responsibility and, and you do what you do really well. And I'm sure he does what he does pretty well. Also, otherwise I, w I can't imagine you'd be as successful as you guys are. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit now, cause I do want to talk a little bit about cost segregation. Cause you alluded to it earlier. I mentioned it in the, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why right now mobile home parks, mobile home communities, whatever you want to call them are one of the most popular asset classes out there. And when people ask me, and I, I deal with conservation across the country, right? Hundreds, thousands of, uh, of investors across the country, every asset class out there. They ask me, what is the best type of asset to buy when it comes to the benefits of cost irrigation? And the answer across the board, right? Without a, without even a, a doubt, even a second to blink is mobile home parks. Now I call them mobile home parks. You may call them mobile home communities. I don't, it doesn't matter. The reason why that is, and I'll explain right now very simply. Okay. And this is, if it hasn't been clear to you before, make sure to check me out and check out uh, Glenn Esterson's podcast where I did a very, very detailed, long, full episode talking all about this, uh, the mobile home. I think it's called the mobile home podcast. I don't remember what it's called. We'll, uh, we'll get that in the notes over here. But if you go to yonawice.com, you can check out all the podcasts I've been on as a guest and find Glenn Esterson's. Anyways, the point I'm trying to make is cost segregation is depreciation. Let's just give a brief overview of what depreciation is for all these out there. And if you guys are watching live, I want you to do me a favor and write down, make sure to give a like, right? Cause that tells the algorithm, right? That, that gets, gets people out there knowing that this is live and watching it. It's going to spread it out further. If you are also watching, put a hashtag, right? Cost seg in the 
comments. Just write Coseg in the comments, right? We have someone comments over here, mobile home park, Coseg, cat is out of the bag. It is out of the bag. It's been out of the bag for many years, but that's not stopping me from telling people about it because if you need those extra deductions, the way to do it is with cost segregation. So let's give a brief overview of what uh, cost segregation is, okay? What depreciation is, and then how specifically it applies to mobile home parks, okay? Number one, Cost depreciation is a tax deduction that you get when you buy a property. Any property you buy, you get this tax deduction called depreciation. And it's really just a phantom expense. Thank you, Samuel. Someone's listening, right? We have 25 people watching live and only one person, uh, cost say, hashtag cost Thank you, Samuel Herzog for, uh, for listening to instructions. Okay. Everyone else also, oh, Sebastian, awesome. Thank you guys. The point I'm trying to make is depreciation is a tax deduction. And thank you, Glenn, for putting the podcast, sharing the link to the, uh, okay, so go check out the Mobile Home Expert podcast with uh, yours truly as the guest. The comment, uh, excuse me, that the link is in the comments officially. So let's talk about this. Depreciation is a deduction you get when you buy a property. So if you buy a property for a million dollars, just keep a round number, you automatically get what's called depreciation deduction. And how that's calculated is over a 27 and a half year period, if it's residential and mobile home parks are residential, you get to subtract a certain amount for land, which does not depreciate. Let's call it 20%. And then that $800,000 that's left, you divide that up over a 27 and a half year period. Okay. So essentially it's around $30,000. That's going to be your yearly tax expense. That means you subtract that from your income. You make $50,000 of income from your real estate. You get to subtract $30,000 right off the top. You're only taxed on the remaining $20,000. That's depreciation in a nutshell. Cost segregation comes in and says, there's a lot of things in the building or in the property that actually depreciate according to the IRS at a much faster schedule. What are those things? Land improvements, and that's what we're going to talk about today with mobile home parks, land improvements. That's like concrete, pavement, landscaping, fencing, anything outside. And inside a property are what's called personal property. That's stuff like furniture, fixtures, carpeting, cabinets, anything that's non-structural. The building and the structural and the infrastructure, those are the only things that really specifically depreciate on that 27 and a half year schedule. So in a nutshell, what we do with cost segregation, and we're doing this in five minutes or less, is taking an allocation and a, a reckoning, basically um, coming down with an engineer and identifying all those individual components that actually depreciate faster than that 27 and a half year and allocating a cost to that or segregating the cost of the whole property into these different categories. Once you've done that, you can take those depreciation deductions at a faster rate. Guess what that means? That means that you can take, instead of that $30,000 deduction, you can actually front load you know, if you're front loading, let's say 20% of the total depreciation to those early years, you can take instead of 30,000, you can take maybe 160 or $180,000 upfront of those depreciation deductions. This is why it's so important because it's a huge cash flow play, right? You're able to take, uh, basically not have any income tax liability. And this is really the main reason why all real estate moguls over the, over the century or the generations, at least not centuries, but over at least this century and the last one are able to scale because they have all this income they're creating from real estate and not being taxed on it because of the depreciation expenses among others. So someone LinkedIn user saying, interesting, uh, that's someone who's LinkedIn user. I can't tell who it is because they're not logged in through StreamYard, but thank you very much. I'll see after the fact who that is. Chris is saying McTire. So now let's talk about why mobile home parks specifically, because as we were talking about, Judah was talking about before, and a lot of people asked, you have cases where you just buy the park 
and you don't actually own any of the homes. Different from a multifamily property. When you're buying a multifamily or single family or any office, retail, industrial, it doesn't matter what it is, the majority of your cost is going in the building, right? In the building itself, in the structure. And even in a, in a cost segregation of a multifamily property, you may find 20 to 30% is going to be in those faster categories in those things that you can take up front. But the majority of that 70% of the cost of the value, excuse me, of the purchase price is going to go into the building, the structural components. When you buy a mobile home park and they're all tenant owned homes, for example, which means you just buy the park, you buy, right, the land and the land improvements, and maybe some of the infrastructure, right, like plumbing or septic and that kind of stuff. What are you actually buying? You're not buying any building, you're not buying very, very little, if any, of that 27 and a half year property. What does that mean for cost segregation? That means, literally, we're finding 50 to 80% of your cost is actually of that million dollars. Take, go back to that example, million dollar purchase price, 50 to 80% of that is in your depreciation, those faster depreciation, the 15 year land improvements. Okay. Now it gets even better because there's something called 100% bonus depreciation. That's what happened a few years ago in the tax reform that you can take any of those faster deductions, that 15 year land improvements in the first year. You don't have to spread it out over a 15 year period. So now, what does it look like? Buy a million dollar mobile home park and get a $500,000 to $800,000 first year tax write-off. Especially if you're working with someone like Judah and you're getting a 20 or 25%, uh, excuse me, 70, 75, 80% LTV. You're not putting down a million dollars. You're not buying a cash. You're buying it, maybe putting down $250,000 to buy that million dollar park. And you're getting a $500,000 to $800,000 tax deduction. It means not only are you getting this huge return, you're paying no taxes whatsoever on any income that you have, especially if you're, you know, a syndicator or you're, you're operating other things. You have other income from other expenses. That's huge. You're, th- this is the number one way that you can scale is using cost segregation and specifically with mobile home parks. So in uh, in five minutes or less, I think I touched on that topic. But any questions? Chris McTire, thank you very much. Hashtag cost seg. Anyone else who's watching live and you didn't yet write hashtag cost seg in the comments, now is your turn. Uh, but please post your questions. We would love to get to them. We have here Judah, Derek, if you're just joining us live today, we are with the on the Weiss Advice podcast. And make sure to subscribe, guys. You can check this out. I This is the first time we're ever doing it live because I host my Wednesday night meetup. That's not the Weiss Advice podcast. That's Real Estate Connections. Virtual meetup every Wednesday, 7 p.m. We have a different guest speaker on a different topic. And then I have the Weiss Advice podcast. We interview amazing guests. And you can check that out on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, Google, Podchaser. Anyone? Anyone? Anywhere you listen, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts, check it out and make sure to uh, to subscribe over there. Love for you guys to leave a review and tell us what you think about our podcast. And uh, let's just get back right into it because we have a couple more questions for you, Judah, about specifically mobile home parks and uh, investing. Because, and thank you guys for complying, Sam and Penny and Philip. Appreciate you guys. You guys are awesome. Hashtag Coseg. Uh, now, if you're just joining us live now, right? Hashtag. MHP, because we're getting, or MHC, whichever you think it should be. If you think it's supposed to be MHP, put MHP. If you think it's a big argument, right? So let's go into that. What's the point? What, what, how do the banks look at that? Do they like that it's called mobile home parks? They like it's called mobile home communities? Like, what's the deal with that? Okay. So the answer is that they would all love for them to be called mobile home communities. I think that there's no doubt that there's everybody's dream as an investor is eventually to get your park to be a community. Um, which the difference between a park and a community is just an asset quality. 
in the quality of tenants and the quality of life at the park. And obviously, gotcha. aesthetically, how the park looks. If it's if you drive through one of these, and I have some of my buddies here locally, and they'll be like, what are you busy with these parks? And I'm like, can we go quickly on a drive? And I'll yeah. take them two minutes down the road from where I live. There is a mobile home community. You drive in there, it just says retirement community 55 plus. You okay. would have no idea if you were not in the mobile home community or mobile home park space, you would have no clue that this is a mobile home community. You drive gotcha. through these, these, how these homes have built porches in front of them, nice landscaping, the roads are all paved. They look like your typical smaller homes and you would have no idea that they're actual mobile homes. That's another very, you know, big mistake that people make is they, they hear the word mobile. They really think that these mm. homes are mobile. They're they trailers. They're trailers, no right? Mobile. That's, that's the stigma. There are trailers. And they really are no longer mobile, right? But I I think some people are are putting here in the comments, and a lot of people, Samuel included, um, right, Sam and Sam, right, manufactured housing community or manufactured home community, not mobile, like totally changing the the idea, right, from what it used to be called, right, trailer park. Uh, they call it a dirty word. We got, right. Because I think, I think what you're, what, what we're talking about here is just kind of changing the way that it's viewed, right? You said you, you sure. drive in, you have no idea. You look at some of these places, especially the ones that are kind of new developments or they're, or they're really redoing them and changing the, uh, or, or a you know, part changing. that Sam Obermeister would have bought five years ago. And now you drive through it and you have no idea that it was ever a mobile home community. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's, that's really what investors are trying to do. And, and, and from a global view, it's really what MHI, which they just had a conference, and, and what they've been focused on and pushing that agenda to the government level down to, you know, the lending to every lender to Fannie and Freddie is impressing upon them that, yes, that old stigma, there might still be trailer parks out there. And there, mm-hmm. those, we agree with you, you know, don't, don't lend on them or be less aggressive on, on the lending on them. But what we're asking for is for you to realize that these are manufactured housing communities, that these are nice communities that are not, they're not mobile homes. They're not trailer parks. They really do deserve to have those aggressive lending terms that you guys right. can give a multifamily, which they do. And, and, and that's really where the difference is. And, and when I have a client that sends a new deal my way, my first question will be, how do you classify this deal? Do you look at, like, is this a trailer park? Is it a mobile home park or is it a community? And if you have pictures, I can help you determine that and I can help paint that picture to lenders. But that's that's where it really gets so, uh, you know, in a way it's silly, but in a way it's, it's a way that they will determine whether or not your asset, your property that you own qualifies for more aggressive financing. Yeah, so and I think it's a- fair, even from a lending perspective. I mean, it, just if you if you take the uh, the analogy when we're talking about multifamily, for example, right? If you're taking multifamily properties, it, lenders don't want to lend on Class D uh, properties, right? For a very good reason, right. uh, because either that there's very high crime, or just the buildings themselves are dilapidated. They are, you know, out of use. The roads are totally broken, and there's no real. Um, it's very difficult. Let's let's put it that way. It's very difficult to get a loan. Because there's not a lot of collateral, 
right? And that's what the right. banks want to see. There are the banks are partners, and so I think that's what we really need to understand when we're talking about this: is changing the definition or changing the the look of it is actually very good for the industry, but it's also you know obviously very good for the communities themselves because when you're cleaning up the roads, when you're putting in parks, when you're making the people there feel like, uh, okay, this is somewhere where I can live. And you actually do have a lot of times you have people that maybe they like, we had uh Danny Weisfield from three pillars on the Weiss advice podcast, not too long ago. And he was talking about there, you know, they own a, a park in Modesta, California, right? It's about a half an hour outside San Francisco or the Bay area. You can't afford to necessarily someone who's working and maybe ha- has a 200, $300,000, right? A year's salary can't necessarily afford, right? A, you know, a million dollar home. Um, or maybe they have a hundred thousand, whatever they're working class and, but they still want to live in a respectable community. And I think it's, it's important to change that, um, change that stigma and change that, especially for sure. the lending lenders perspectives. Um, we have a few more yeah. comments here. Um, I want to get to some of these here. We got actually a lot of comments. Thank you guys for watching. And if you're joining us live now, make sure to comment below if you do have any questions. But, um, but Sam said over here, let's, let's don't forget Fannie Freddie haven't. These are big affordable housing problems. They haven't yet changed some of those definitions. I think is what he's referring to. Um, and part of the solution to affordable housing. That's absolutely right. Affordable housing is something that's a huge concern. And these manufactured housing communities are, um, a great, you know, a, a, a absolutely part of the solution. a big part of the yeah. solution. Absolutely. So Gerald asked a great question over here. Um, I assume this is directed towards me. How do you recommend the allocation of purchase price to maximize cost seg and tax benefits? Is a great question. I wouldn't. You know, there are different ways, and actually, I discussed this with uh, with Ferd Neiman on the on the Mobile Home Park Lawyer podcast about specifically how to allocate the purchase price. And one thing that we discussed is you have a lot of cases where MHCs we'll call it now from now on, um, are, Thank you. they want to apply a certain, um, a certain amount of value to, um, to goodwill. Okay. It's very common with, with animations. The problem with goodwill is that it is, well, let's talk about the benefit of goodwill. Why do people want to do that? Because you know, maybe there's a business involved and that's generally speaking, why you're going to allocate goodwill to, uh, to something in the purchase price. Well, what happens with that goodwill, uh, the reason why the buyer wants to do that is because when you have, you know, let's say, let's just take an example, you buy a million dollar park and you allocate, you know, 300,000 to goodwill. So only 700,000 is actually going to be applied to the, to the actual real estate itself, which will have an impact or can have an impact on potential uh, property tax reevaluation, right? Reassessment. That's why you may not want to have a much higher purchase price. That's one reason for that. However, even though goodwill, that 300,000 can be depreciated and is depreciated on a 15-year schedule, it is not eligible for bonus depreciation. And so therefore, it's excluded from the calculation of the the bonus depreciation that we talked about before, that you can get this huge amount up front. So that's, uh, I generally... Uh, if obviously I'm not talking to people necessarily recommending I'm not an attorney, that's not my job. Uh, but I would recommend if you want to maximize the tax benefits from a cost segregation perspective, don't make any allocations whatsoever in the purchase price, uh, and just let that uh, be done with the cost segregation study itself, and therefore you can maximize the tax benefits because whatever. <laughs> Uh, allocations are, ma- well, let's put it this way. Sometimes allocations that are made in the, pr- in the purchase sale agreement are need to be upheld within the cost seg study itself as well, and therefore cannot be changed. And so you may be losing out a tremendous amount of benefit 
because you've already established certain costs to certain things instead of letting the engineer use the IRS's definitions of how much can be depreciated for different things. Yeah, and I'll just interject here on from a lending perspective as well. From at least uh, what we find with Fannie and Freddie, they've been the strictest on this, is if they see a, an allocation, same same way we spoke about earlier, if they see an allocation towards park-owned homes, if they'll see an allegation, an allocation towards goodwill at times, not always, but at times they'll give very heavy pushback in that saying, you have so much allocated here towards goodwill, we're not lending against goodwill, we're lending against the purchase of the property. So right. um, that's another thing to just keep in mind as you're making those allocations, definitely talk to your attorney about how it might affect the lending side or talk to myself or my partner about different lenders might have different ways they view allocations and when it comes to goodwill allocation or park home allocation. Very, very, very good point over there. One more question here from from David Brown, and I think we're going to wrap it up after this. Uh, but please put in a couple more questions if you do have, and we'll try to get to them. But David Brown asked a good question. With the rise of modular homes, is there a threat to the MHP space? An end buyer purchasing a mobile home pays a much higher interest rate than one purchasing a home that qualifies for standard home loan. As such, it would seem the modular may be a threat, if I may. So what are your thoughts on that, Judah? Do you see the modular homes as a threat? And what I think he's talking about referring to, just a little more context, I think oftentimes the owner will do infill, they'll build more homes. And oftentimes, uh, even if they don't build more homes, they'll bring in uh, homes, develop them, et cetera. And those homes, they will want to then sell to the tenant, right? Oftentimes, because again, the parks don't necessarily want to own the homes themselves. So they're going to want to uh, sell those homes or finance those homes, if you will. Maybe they'll finance them, maybe banks will finance them, et cetera, to the actual owner. So I think what Sam is saying is those those homes, the mobile homes themselves, may have a different lending criteria or interest or rates as opposed to modular homes. You find that to, to be the so case or I'm what's not, your opinion on that? I'm not really familiar, to be honest, with the modular home model and and how you know where there are modular homes and what type of communities um those are i can't speak to mobile home parks where i I think that people cannot get their hands on mobile homes fast enough for tenants that want to buy them Um, we've not seen that even slightly on a on a national scale there's been like everything else that we're right now experiencing a supply issue um in the united states we're experiencing that with the actual homes and buyers can't and owners of parks cannot get their hands on homes fast enough. But once they do, there's, you know, a a long list of tenants lined up to, you know, offer to buy that home outright to put on a schedule of buying those homes. So I didn't, I haven't seen it affect it yet. And I'd be surprised if it does, because there are no new mobile home communities being built. Uh, almost okay. anywhere in the country. So, And, and Sam Herzog mentioned over here that the, even though the price may be higher, but the cross-mode manufacturing homes can have regular financing too. So that's important to note. And Sam Obermeister also mentioned over here, good point, David Braun, but you should be aware the HUD, the financial government as whole, has been making strides to have mo- mobile home financing become much more in line with regular residential mortgages like an ordinary home. For example, New York State ruled out the Sony Me mortgage program. I don't know what that stands for, but um, albeit with some major issues, which has rates from 33% at 30-year loans. So there are options available. Fannie and Freddie, Sam also mentioned over here, both a great financing for the cross modes. Other lenders, non-cross modes, have rates much better than chat alone. So there are options out there is what I'm hearing from a lot of our uh, audience today who are very, very well-versed in the 
MHC universe. And I'm very appreciative to all of you for tuning in today and for asking these great questions for myself and for Mr. Judah Derrett from Princeton Capital Group, mobile home park, excuse me, manufacturing housing community expert whose sound went out again. But we'll uh, hopefully we will <laughs> we'll join you. Hopefully you'll join us next time. Any parting words for our parting audience words. today? Thank you to everyone who joined, everyone that joined live, anyone that's going to watch this after. I'm honored. I did not know that this was the first live Weiss advice, which this is a whole new level of honor here. But um, it really was fun and extremely enlightening, um, at least for myself from a cost perspective. I, I, I learned a lot. Um, and I hope that anybody that does have questions for myself or for Yona, um, you can reach out to either of us. Um, uh, we'll be happy to uh, assist. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys know where to find us. If you're watching this live on LinkedIn, obviously you know where to find us. Uh, connect with us if we are not already connected. You can uh, follow me, but you can also click the three dots that says more on my profile and actually connect with me as a connection so we can have a conversation and happy to help anyone with Coseg on any of your properties because we do this, like I said, nationwide. And uh, oh, Arun, that's who the mystery LinkedIn user was. Thank you, Yona and Judah. Arun, great to see you. Um, and great to see all of you today, Sam Hertog, and so many more amazing people who've been watching this live. I appreciate you all. Uh, let me know if you'd like uh, me to do this again. We've uh, Again, this is our first ever live Weiss Advice. I'm also going to be publishing this to the podcast, so you can catch the replay there, not only on LinkedIn, but let me know you know, if you wanted me to do more of these and with, uh, with other people, otherwise you just listen to the regular interviews, go subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. And as I end all of those other podcast episodes with remember till next time, the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review. I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.